welcome to Rising. What we have for you today is a show, and it starts now. Piano, what's up? Well, we have a fantastic panel to discuss the homelessness crisis Americans are seeing across the nation. And Teslin Fidera will weigh in on whether Dark Brandon could become Dank Brandon with the help of John Betterman. Plus, Alex Holder discusses the latest on the Mar-a-Lago raid, and we'll have a special guest to discuss the effects of long COVID. But before we get to all of that, the Washington Times is reporting a senior FBI official has resigned after coming under congressional scrutiny for suspected political bias in how he handled the Hunter Biden laptop story. According to eyewitness accounts, Timothy Tabalt left his post Friday and was escorted out of the building. The 25-year FBI veteran was on leave for over a month after Senator Chuck, Grace, Chuck Grassley raised concerns about whistleblower claims that the FBI has obstructed its own investigation in to the first son. Now, Grassley's July letter said that Tabalt and FBI intelligence analyst Brian Otten were allegedly involved in suggesting Hunter's laptop was disinformation. Hmm. Yeah, and to think these were the guys who blew the lid off the whole thing. I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So that's obviously Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg talking to Joe Rogan and kind of unwittingly breaking this story about how the FBI Oh, I think out. it was very winning. I don't think it was really? unwitting at all. So we, we did mention this. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the show yesterday. Bacha and I did. And uh, I, I agree with uh, what she said, which is that this is not quite the smoking gun, it necessarily seems like, mm. because... Zuckerberg is actually saying that he, they were in regular, Facebook was in regular contact with the FBI warning them about disinformation, and it wasn't specifically about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And wrote, because then Rogan clarifies, mm. wait, are you saying they actually came to you and, and said that? It's, so it seems to me Zuckerberg wanted to throw the FBI under the bus mm. in this interview because they're taking so much heat now for the Mar-a-Lago raid, and he thought this was a good time to really twist the knife. I see. That said, it is clear that uh, that the FBI was having regular contact with social media companies and warning them about things like the Hunter Biden laptop story in a way that I think is concerning, given that they've not had a great track, re uh, track record necessarily for identifying genuine misinformation. Um, at, you know, they came out, a member, former members of the FBI and, and national security and intelligence and law enforcement gave so much credence to the idea that this was not a real story when they all signed that letter. So I, I, it, it is worrisome without being, I think, a, a smoking gun is what we yeah, decided we're yesterday. Yeah, we're saying again and again, these social media companies can't wiggle out of the issue, that they're ultimately going to be forced to independently come to, you know, have decision-making authority over what they do in these instances. They can't rely on the FBI. They can't just turn over information willy-nilly to Amazon without getting a certain degree of public blowback. And it's curious what they're going to actually put into place to handle issues like this as they continue to come down and the they're in the And they're in a tough situation. A tough spot. I mean, I mean in law enforcement, the FBI comes to, you know, this a couple years ago now, even before the FBI takes on this very, you know, uh, political kind of role, and now it's, it's widely distrusted by, you know, half the country. Yeah. But 
<laughs> normally, under normal circumstances, law enforcement comes to you, top law enforcement, national security people say, oh, you have to be aware, this is, uh, this is a plot, you're being manipulated, your platform, your company. You generally take that seriously. You'd have to be a pretty sure. you know, extremist, like anarchist, <laughs> leftist uh, organization to tell it to go take a hike and not do what they say. Now, now maybe we know better, but I'm saying at well, the time, that would have been, been wild for them to just blow that off. And does this militate toward these companies going back toward right. a strict... Uh, we do not publisher mo yeah. model where they're just yeah. laying the feed, do what the feed is going to do without weighing in. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Well, the House Judiciary uh, GOP tweeted that uh, this a FBI agent, Tabalt, had shut down investigative activity relating to Hunter Biden and sought to pad the FBI's number of domestic violence extremism cases. Senator Ron Johnson said, while I appreciate that he is reportedly no longer with the FBI, he and other FBI officials must be held accountable if they undermine the investigation into the Biden family's foreign financial entanglements. So this is a pretty serious accusation uh, being leveled against this guy that he held up any investigation, any probe. Uh, you know, the defense, the agency has offered for, for why the, the uh, a potential investigation into Hunter Biden did not come to fruition at that time was they didn't want to do anything potentially damaging so close to an election. Which, you know, I guess is an excuse, but seems very easy to, uh, you know, it seems like if they really wanted to, that wouldn't have stood in their way. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> right? I mean, this obviously is in the context of the Hillary Clinton emails and the effect, whether or not you believe it's true, that it might have had on the 2016 election. And I do think that there is a legitimate concern to be had about whether or not something that should be investigated does have an unintended political effect. But also, you have to realize that there is a long tail on these sorts of things. And are you going to sacrifice the trust in the institution? Are you going to have a consistent model by which you handle these cases? Are you Have you really given thought to this as you suppress information that is relevant? Also, who are you to say, I'm sorry, yeah. who are you to say that this evidence that is material enough to potentially affect the outcome of election isn't exactly the kind of thing that voters should have the right to make decisions on. We're getting to the point where even if the underlying, uh, the cover-up is worse than the crime, where even right. if there isn't enough underlying evidence that what Hunter Biden was doing was, you know, was illegal in, in terms of the kind of foreign lobbying or even involved his, maybe it didn't involve his father, how law enforcement handled this is now itself very suspect, yeah. given what's coming out, what whistleblowers are saying, what this FBI agent may, may have done. I, I want investigation of, honestly, of how law enforcement handled it. And if that's bad, then that speaks to, then that would raise legitimate concern about maybe what they're doing with Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Also, do we really think that this story about Hunter Biden's laptop would have had that big of an effect? Because the reality is we knew about mm -hmm. it. The question wasn't whether or not it, we had a general public awareness of it. It was about whether or not you could literally post the story on social media. It I think it would have been less of a story. Post. It would have been less of a go. story right, exactly. if they not tried to, I think trying to suppress it made it a actually a bigger story. Exactly. Um, because you didn't stop anyone from here. You can't argue to me that people didn't find right. out about it because the next 80 stories on social media were about, we're about how social blocking. media had yeah. suppressed the story. Exactly. So. I, I agree. Well, back in 2020, Thibault put this message out on behalf of the agency over, you guessed it, combating election misinformation. The FBI is charged with protecting the rights of all Americans, including their right to vote. While the responsibility to ensure a fair election process lies primarily at the state and local level, the FBI takes allegations of election-related violations of federal law seriously. The FBI investigates federal election crimes that generally fall into three categories. Campaign finance crimes, 
voter ballot fraud, and civil rights violations. The FBI Washington Field Office works with our state and federal partners to engage with other law enforcement partners and provide resources about the FBI's role in elections. So do you think there's an inconsistency there? Uh, do you think that uh, they're, they're hand-wringing about misinformation at the same time that they're doing a misinformation? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the whole problem with this kind of misinformation uh, prevention industry that has yeah. appeared kind of out of nowhere over the last couple of years, I guess, in a, as a response to many progressives trying to grapple with how could Hillary Clinton have lost in 2016. And, and the answer that was arrived at by people who were like in denial about how she could have <laughs> lost is that people were, tr were tricked, utterly duped by a deliberate campaign of sabotage uh, waged by Russia. That was the comfort explanation. Yeah, anything but her own actions. Look, I was uh, talking to someone yesterday who reminded me of something that was a little memory hold, which is Rachel Maddow singing Bernie Sanders' praises uh, in the lead up to the election about how hard he had been working for Hillary Clinton, how many stops he had been doing for her on the trail, how he had been doing more campaign stops than Hillary Clinton had herself. And then once she lost, all of that had to go away because someone, many people, had to be blamed for her failure, including Bernie Sanders for apparently not trying hard Even enough to get people a, on board. Which is ridiculous. Gave her a full-throated endorsement. Correct. Absolutely. Could not have been clearer that, no, you have Correct. to vote for Hillary Clinton more, because more Trump More Bernie voters yeah. voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 right. than right. Hillary Clinton voters voted for Barack Obama in 2008, the whole shebang. But yeah, I think it's part and parcel of her fundamental inability to have accountability for her own losses, and now the broader world is suffering yeah. for it. Uh, your, your analysis of that is not wrong. Me, I, I'm more, <laughs> you were involved in the Bernie campaign. Me watching from a distance, having no dog in this fight whatsoever, could obviously tell that it was just utterly yeah. BS to argue that like Bernie people were not help, were not committed to the cause of stopping Donald Trump. It was a totally ridiculous yeah. narrative. Yeah. Well, we'll see where we go with the misinformation campaigns, and we will have more rising for you after this, including our radars. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, I've got another student loan debt radar, but I think you'll agree with this one, most of this one, Brianna. So last week, President Biden announced that he would forgive up to $20,000 of student loan debt for qualifying borrowers who make less than $125,000 per year. But that wasn't all. Biden also said he would create a new income-driven repayment system for college borrowers, IDR for short. The IDR aspect of Biden's plan attracted less scrutiny than the direct forgiveness aspect, which will cost at least $300 billion in the immediate future. But in the long term, this aggressive move toward an income-driven model of repaying college loans will probably have a bigger impact, and that impact could be catastrophic. In fact, unless the government does something else to constrain colleges and universities' ability to set their own prices, IDR could break the entire higher education financing system and lead to skyrocketing costs for taxpayers. There are some IDR programs available right now, but Biden's approach would vastly expand this option. So the existing plans require borrowers to pay 10, 15, or 20% of their income for two decades, at which point the rest of the loan is forgiven. So Biden would make IDR much more appealing than it is currently. So according to the Biden-Harris debt relief plan, borrowers will pay just 5% of their income, or 10% if they took out graduate student loans, for either 10 or 20 years, depending on how much money they owe. The income threshold will be raised from 150% above the poverty line to 225%, which covers a lot more people, and the punitive interest rates are going to be eliminated. 
So all in all, this IDR model will be extremely appealing for a large number of borrowers. It's a great deal. We should expect the percentage of borrowers who are repaying via that method to increase substantially in the coming years. But without further changes to the federal student loan program, this is actually going to be a huge problem. That's because both the borrowers and the universities will have increased incentive to bilk the people who actually make the loans, the taxpayers. So let's get into this. Under the current system, a prospective student needs a certain amount of money to pay for tuition at a university. Let's say it's $50,000. They borrow that sum from the government, i.e. the taxpayers. Later, the borrower pays it back with interest. The university's incentives are already less than ideal. You might feel free to raise the, pr the price of tuition to, let's say, $60,000. Satisfied that the student really wants the degree and will thus borrow more money and deal with the consequences afterward. To the extent that the government loan program disguises upfront costs, it arguably already contributes to rising tuition rates. Multiple economic studies have found that this is the case. Under IDR, though, this situation is going to get much worse because now the university and the borrowers have incentive to cooperate and screw the taxpayers. So for the borrower, it actually doesn't matter if tuition costs $15,000 or $5 million. The borrower will, re will be repaying the same amount, 5% of income for 10 years, regardless of the size of the loan or the cost of tuition. Since it makes no difference to the borrower, the university might as well raise prices astronomically. This way, the university pockets more money, and the borrower doesn't even have to pay it back. Something close to this scheme already exists in law schools, which have loan repayment assistance programs, LRAPS, L-R-A-P-S. According to the leftist writer Matt Brunig, uh, who was the inspiration for a lot of this radar, the arrangement is very likely to produce increased tuition as universities and students figure out that they can essentially cooperate in this game to beat the House. Brunig writes, just as schools have new incentives to push debt loads higher in an IDR-dominated world, so do students. Above, I say that, for students planning to enroll in IDR, $15,000 of student debt is no different than $100,000 of student debt. This is not quite right, though. A student planning to enroll in IDR actually benefits from taking the maximum amount of debt possible. Student loans are initially paid to schools to cover tuition and fees, but what's left after tuition and fees is dispersed as cash to the students, ostensibly to cover living expenses. In a conventional student loan, you have reason to live frugally and take out as little debt as possible. But if you're planning to go on IDR, then your incentive flips and you're leaving money on the table if you don't take out the maximum loan possible. Bruning notes that Australia also uses IDR, but in Australia, the government prohibits universities from charging obscenely high tuition rates. If we're going to make the leap into an IDR-dominant college financing system, then we may need the government to also play a much bigger role in setting college prices, something it probably should have been doing even before the Biden policy change, writes Brunig. Otherwise, we may very well see more unwanted cost bloat beyond what we already have. So Brunig approaches these issues from the left, but he's not wrong that these policies make for a dreaded combination. And let's be clear what these three policies are. One, letting students get publicly subsidized loans. Two, allowing the borrowers to pay a percentage of their income instead of paying back the entire loan. And three, permitting universities to charge whatever the hell they want for tuition. The result is that tuition will be meaningless as a pricing signal, and institutions will have no reason whatsoever to keep costs down. On the contrary, they'd be foolish not to jack up tuition prices since the broken loan system would be functioning as basically a direct wealth transfer from taxpayers to university coffers. One solution would be for the government, at a minimum, to set tuition prices for public state universities, which, after all, are public utilities paid for by taxpayers. So from my perspective, it's not unlibertarian or anti-free market to think that if the state is going to confiscate wealth from taxpayers in order to maintain public educational institutions, those institutions should be generally affordable to those same taxpayers. Another idea would be to move to a system in which students 
don't take out loans at all. Instead of paying tuition, they agree to pay a percentage of their income to the university for some length of time after graduation. This would be like income-driven repayment, but it would cut out the government as the middleman and thus get taxpayers off the hook. So Purdue University President Mitch Daniels did experiment with something just like this, <clears throat> though it was paused earlier this year due to implementation difficulties. Something has to be done, though, or else IDR is likely to become a significant problem by encouraging students to take on even more debt and then never expecting them to repay it at all. The Biden administration is creating a system where everyone involved in higher education has incentive to fleece the American people. And that's scary because it's already <clears throat> already the uh, student loan system is shown to increase the prices because it's, you know, it's disguising that you're paying it later so the university can trick you a little bit. But here, if you're not even if you're not paying back the loan anyway, you're, you're going to pay back part of your income, which is a fine system. That, that is yeah. a, a better system. But the universities will just raise. They have no reason not to raise it. Yeah, I completely agree. It's why it's such a shame that there hasn't been more appetite before this point from conservatives, Democrats, libertarians, anyone really except for the progressive left to get to the bottom of these kinds of problems by implementing a plan like the one Bernie put forward years ago to make public colleges and universities tuition free. If we're going to be sinking all of these, this money into education, to your point, it should be to make education broadly affordable to everyone the same way that we guarantee K through 12 for free for American citizens. Rightly or wrongly, like it or not, we live in a world where a growing number of jobs require higher education, not just because it's a feather in your cap and it makes you feel good, but because jobs require training. And we want people in this country to be able to do the kind of jobs we're now bringing back home, like these semiconductor jobs. We want people to be trained to do these vocations, like you know, you don't roll in a bed and be an electrician. These are jobs that are highly skilled, and people need to respect the education and the cost of the education that goes into getting vocational degrees. Public colleges and universities, I would argue, need to be tuition-free, and Bernie had a plan to have a small tax on Wall Street transactions in order to fund exactly that and to shift all of this money going into these federal grant programs over to simply making colleges and universities tuition free, at which point if someone opts to go to a public institution, they're on their own, or a private institution, right, rather, they're right, on right, their own. Right. And also what that will do is help to flatten some of the gross inequity that happens between people who go to these elite private schools and people who go to public schools. And other countries with similar models, something that Matt Bruning also writes about, a lot about, Scandinavian models in education and healthcare and a lot of different kinds of things, there is less of that um, jockeying and brinkmanship over what school is right. like this much higher in the Princeton Review and you've got these celebrities in the United States of America who are already millionaires cheating and doing federal crimes and going to jail just so their little their little princess can get into like a marginally better school. So I, I completely agree we've got to get to the yeah, system. In terms of the free college, you and I aren't as far apart on this issue as our viewers might expect mm. given that it is really a progressive or a left uh, policy but I, I mean I agree that there's no re if a public educational institution, a university, like there's no reason that it shouldn't be at least, if not free, at least affordable to the very children of the people whose tax money is taken to fund it. Yeah. So it, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, and so for right through K through 12, the funding model for schools that are public schools, they receive right an allotment from the government. You know, based on how many kids are enrolled, uh, it's different in you know different um, uh, jurisdictions. But something like that, it, so, so there is a limit basically on how much money these schools are getting is serving as a public, uh, uh, serving a public educational role, what they're getting from the government. Then when we move to the, to the 
colleges and universities that said, no, they're just they're setting whatever they want. They yeah. have no they have no oversight. Yeah, can you imagine if a state legislature? I mean, I wish this would happen, but a state legislature said, sorry, University of Michigan, you uh, you can't raise like it's unaffordable to the people who live here. You have to you 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 can't you know remodel that dorm and add like a lazy river ride like you'd like to and raise <laughs> tuition by ten percent again. We're not going to let you do that. Look, I, I will say this: a lot of colleges are actually experiencing some pretty harsh funding. Um, issues where it's not a lot of the excess that people point to. There's certainly excesses, and That's I have no interest in DEI. I'm not a big fan of those kinds of policies. I think they're just glorified HR for the most part and don't do anything to help the well being of the students on campus. But, you know, there was a, a strike, not a strike, but like a, a, a tent sleep out, you know, protest at Howard last year where students were protesting the fact that they had mold like medically problematic mold in their dorms and like rodent infestations mm -hmm. because they couldn't get the funding to remodel the dorms. I mean, there's some really serious issues happening at college campuses that I don't want to be dismissive of, but it's it's worth noting how we got here from a historical trajectory. It wasn't that people woke up one day and said, oh, let's just do you know, this, this uh, federal grant funding model. We had a country that had public institutions that were incredibly valuable. The University of California system was the crown jewel of the country, and people were able to go in and get an education for just a few hundred dollars a year. I recently watched a viral clip on Bill Maher where Rob Reiner, the you know director, actor, was talking about how he went to the UC system back in, I think, the 70s and paid a few hundred dollars and got a great education. That world disappeared and not by accident. It was because Ronald Reagan as governor and Nixon as president, they understood that the, the movements from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, all of the equality movements, the civil rights movements, the women's rights movements, were gestating in these college campuses. And as part of their political agenda, they decided to sacrifice our entire educational system so that they could they could win politically. And so there's a great article right now by John Schwartz in the, in the uh, Intercept about that. There's a people want to read about it in more detail. Maybe we should have him on as a guest. But the reality is that we're making choices as a society about who carries the burden of these kinds of things. And I think it's, you're completely right to want to try to right the ship now. We can hold the institutions wrong, accountable. I mean, they, at no point, most of these institutions have, on an administrative level, have showed zero interest in, in keeping down costs. And why should costs. they when they, they can get these federal dollars? Right, I, I right. completely agree. One last point to mention is that the reason we are talking about student debt cancellation right now and not a more holistic system of review, which I entirely support and have been fighting for for years in the context of the Bernie campaign and outside of it, is because Joe Biden has the authority to cancel student debt by executive order. And again, it's really we'll important. See. It's really important to emphasize this. Like a lot of people are raising, well, there's other kinds of debt. There are people who are poor. There are people who should get helped first. And I completely agree, and have been fighting to cancel medical debt, and have been arguing for years that those two policies should be tied together, exactly for this reason. Because rhetorically, it makes a lot more sense to deal with the more. Um, you know, traumatized population. However, he cannot do that without congressional authority. So to the extent that people want mm -hmm. those kinds of initiatives and want to get at the bottom of the student debt crisis and reform education, generally speaking, you got to talk to your Congress I, members. I will concede that there's more, I guess, public buy-in to the idea that, that Biden can do this unilaterally, cancel student debt. I don't know if he actually can, and we'll see what the court has well, to Robert say about it. And Nancy Pelosi, you know, previously didn't think he had the authority yeah, to well, do it, but Na we'll see. Nancy Pelosi was too busy counting her husband's PPP loan uh, money. But the, the Installing a breathalyzer <laughs> on his steering wheel, perhaps, as well. Robbie! <laughs> but look, the, the, the reality is that the exact same authority mm -hmm. that's been used to 
have the student debt moratorium for two years. Donald Trump's student debt moratorium, I think he should get credit for that. I'm not, not It's not clear to me that a Democrat would have done that, and it was a huge help. But Donald, Donald Trump's student debt moratorium is uh, enacted under the exact same authority that the student debt cancellation is enacted under. It's just an indefinite, right. permanent right. moratorium. That's all it is. Right. Well, we'll see if that one would hold up in court <laughs> as well. More rising right after this. Social media users are reporting that eBay is locking the accounts of users who sell over $600 worth of products until they submit their social security number for IRS reporting. The notice on eBay reads, as of January 1st, 2022, the IRS now requires us to file and send a 1099-K form to everyone who sells $600 or more. Please update your information so we can start sending your payouts and avoid other account restrictions. According to the New York Post, only 4% of the agency's $80 billion in new funding will go to customer service despite their pledge to use the cash to, quote, help taxpayers. According to the Washington Post, the bigger scandal is that right-wing threats against agents have been mounting. The Post reports that the IRS has launched a full security review. Post reporter Jacob Bogage writes, quote, the attacks on the IRS, other agencies, and federal employees make sense if delegitimizing government is the point. Meanwhile, Post columnist Dana Milbank for the opinion section says questioning the agency is part of the right's fascism problem. Quote, violent anti-government rhetoric from party leaders targets the FBI, the Justice Department, and the IRS. A systemic campaign of disinformation makes their supporters feel victimized by shadowy elites. It's a very bad and lazy column. Um, yeah, for targeting, how dare we criticize the FBI, the Justice Department, the IRS? We were criticized, we were criticizing the FBI in our A block today because there's a lot of uh, sketchy stuff regarding how they handled the, the Hunter Biden probe. Well, let's be a little bit specific, though, because I do think that obviously all of these organizations, any government organization records. or otherwise, has a mixed record and is subject to critique. I think part of the concern that people have, and I want to know what you think about this, is about the kind of rhetoric that's come out of the right that really emphasizes the minority of IRS agents that carry firearms and really uh, implies that there are going to be raids, kind of FBI-style raids on the homes of American citizens, and that American citizens should, in effect, arm up and start targeting FBI agents the way we've already seen FBI agents target since the Mar-a-Lago oh, okay. incident. Fine. I, I didn't think the, right, there was some suggestion that there are going to be armed IRS agents. To me, that was not the concerning thing about the new news. I, I generally don't freak out when people <laughs> have guns. I, I People should be allowed to have guns. I'm, I'm not a gun control supporter, as we've talked about in <laughs> other contexts. So that didn't trigger me the way it, it triggered some people. Mm -hmm. I, I take your point on that. The right, the scary thing about the IRS is not that they're going to shoot you. They're, they're going to make your life more difficult by tying you up in more procedures. They're going to make it harder for people who, who earn a living doing a case, you know, not I just work a nine to five mm -hmm. job, but I make my income. Maybe I, I do ride share sometimes. Maybe I make stuff and sell it on eBay. On Maybe eBay, I do yeah. all these various things. Yeah. And the concern is the IRS is ha adding a lot of muscle. It's saying it's adding muscle so it can really get those rich sons of, sons of a gun who can you know, screw people who, who don't yeah. pay their fair share of the taxes. But as we've seen previously, it's so much easier for the IRS to go after you to make but your life more difficult. that's complicated, Robbie. Like, I, I know, it's a chicken I, and I, egg problem. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I 
And then when we first started talking about it on the show, you know, you can go back and listen. I was very sympathetic to that. But I also think we have to reckon with the, the numbers that we have and the statistics that we have, which are the best thing that I think we can do to predict what's going to happen with the uh, increased funding. And the funding increases that are being proposed or that have been passed in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act are literally returning the IRS to the numbers that it had 10 years ago. And when you look back to what the IRS did 10 years ago, it did much, much more, I forget the, the actual percentage number, but overwhelmingly more enforcement among elites and holding them accountable for their taxes than they do now. And part of the argument that's being made by the IRS now is that they focus on lower income cases because those are easier cases. Rich people have lawyers, it's protracted litigation, they have accountants, they know how to hide their money and cover their tracks, and it requires more resources to do so. I mean, what do you make of that? So. There's two arguments I want to toss you away, see what you make of them. So one, one thing I, I've heard uh, that I've heard other libertarian people make is that regardless of how much IRS enforcement you have or, or, what you, or how you tinker or change the, whatever you're doing, the government basically collects about 19% of GDP in taxes, no matter what we do. And, and that's basically all they can they can, that's all the money they can wring out of people. How can you say no matter what we do and we've seen Well, a swing historically, in what there's it, not been a massive swing in how much money. But there, the, but there the, has the, been that's a what, meaningful change in what the IRS has been able to collect, especially mm -hmm. from rich people, over the, just the last 10 years, depending on how much, how well they're funded. The other thing would be, so my argument would be we need to, we clearly need to make the tax code simpler. 100%. Because it is so confusing um, and it's more confusing, the, the, the fact that it's confusing, rather, impacts um, people with less financial means 100%. more because wealthy people can afford tax attorneys to, to legally not pay their tax. I mean, they're, it's, yes. it's not, they're not all fact, doing, committing crimes. They, they're doing things that are perfectly legal. Yes, and they spend their right. money to lobby to make sure that right. we don't simplify the tax code. The government knows how much you owe every month. That's how they I do it every, every Why year. Why can't they just tell us? They can just tell us. <laughs> but they, the very rich people right. spend a lot of money to make sure that that doesn't happen. And all of the banks and tax preparers also spend a lot of money lobbying to make sure that their services don't become obsolete. Yeah. So this, this is true. the problem. It this, is a huge this problem. Is I mean, my problem. taxes are, I mean, I'm a privileged person, you're probably like this too, though. If you have freelance income, if you yeah. have a variety of income sources, which a lot of you know journalists and media figures do, it starts to get darn complicated. Yeah, this is the first year that I'm going to really have to be dealing with that. I'm not looking forward That's, to it. It's a mess. <laughs> it's an absolute mess. Right. So I think we're, we're in agreement on that, that there, there is some tinkering happening here around the edges that is, uh, you know, eluding the bigger problem yeah. here, and that I think that elites in both parties don't really want to reckon with that. I do think we have to take a little bit of a wait-and-see approach to see what happens with the staffing up of IRS agents. If it is true that they come after little people like folks spending $600 on eBay mm -hmm. and don't go after the big dogs, I will be right there with you objecting, and we should keep an eye on this and have accountability. But I also think we have to deal with this. This is from um, Representative Andrew Clyde um, from Georgia this month on the House floor. He says, think about it. If the left will weaponize the FBI to raid President Trump's personal residence, they will surely weaponize the IRS's new 87,000 agents, many of whom will be trained in the use of deadly force to go after any American citizen. You know, uh, Rick Scott, uh, chairman of the National Senatorial Committee, uh, says um, IRS hires will need to be ready to... Uh, uh, the I, sorry, the IRS's words, sorry, the IRS needs to be ready to audit and investigate your fellow hardworking Americans, your neighbors and your friends. You need to be ready and to use the IRS words, willing to kill them. I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric that the, the article is pushing back on. And whatever I think about how the IRS could be weaponized against 
poor people. Is this an issue that we have representatives well, talking in these violent <clears throat> terms about members, American citizens and, and people who work for the government? Okay. Yes, the right-wing rhetoric from a lot of Republicans has gotten totally out of control. I find it, I find it off-putting and weird. I don't even think it's tactically smart because it clearly turns people off. Um, the kinds of, you know, I, I did that radar on the rhino hunting ad from yeah. that deranged Missouri uh, failed candidate. Yes, it's uh, it's very bad in in uh, right-wing political spheres that there's a reward from a certain part of the base so there's a there's a dopamine hit on social media from activating your like craziest followers mm -hmm. it's just not representative of how most people feel about it and it has it has encouraged a lot of people to go way too far in how they talk about these things these things that that said and that aside i don't i don't think it is not wrong to cast <laughs> to cast aspersions on law enforcement i mean that's something sure. the left does that's 100%. something the left does all the time and i'm right there with them saying uh, that police have too much power and abuse that power and and harm citizens sometimes in a in a uh, racially insensitive or racially discriminatory way and like I agree with all that and if Ayanna Presley gets on TV and says the the cops the pigs are coming for you you got to arm up and be willing to kill them what would the response be the, from the, the right the response would be as she said she shouldn't if she said literally that that would be pretty bad I mean, she should not is, say that this this yeah. is this is the I was going to say the subtext, but it's pretty much the text text of what's being said by not all, but some conservatives. Yeah. And I, I do think there is some legitimacy in asking whether or not there are going to be bad down, downstream effects from that kind of rhetoric. Yes, but okay, but there is bad downstream. We, we can't. There are ba there's bad downstream effects of it's. It's hard. To, the other side does that a lot too. I, they honestly do. I mean, there's there's extreme rhetoric on both sides, and I think it's often very lazy to draw. Like, well, this is why there's more violence because people you. say those things. But when a should sitting, they they should not say it because it's not appropriate. Period. When when a sitting progressive or moderate Democrat starts talking about people arming up to shoot and, and be willing to kill uh, federal employees. I think we'll, we'll be in a, in a similar tit-for-tat case. But this does feel like an escalation of the likes of which we haven't seen from our sitting congressional representatives. That's, that's all I'm saying. The underlying concerns about the IRS, I'm perfectly willing to entertain. But I do think that this represents, you know, this and ongoing rhetoric has shift. always been pretty... Uh, there was maybe a period of time when we were much younger where... There was a lot less, I, I guess, anger in our uh, political uh, system. But uh, the things that can't, uh, hundred or two year, hundred years ago, right? It was all trying to human. Somebody beat somebody with a cane on the steps of the <laughs> steps of the Capitol. Not not in town in twenty, not in twenty twenty, but in uh, but in eighteen sixty three or whatever. So, I'm yeah. Just well, all right. I guess I guess we have to make sure people are. Well caned <laughs> on the House floor. We should uh, we should cane our representatives uh, philosophically, philosophically, not using actual violence. They should be caned at the polls by the voters. Rhetorically. Rhetorically, to be clear. <laughs> Team Rising joins us next. Stay with us. Across the country, state, local, and federal governments depend on annual estimates to direct billions of dollars in spending to help the homeless. But according to reporting by The Washington Post, many advocates and public officials say these estimates are best guesses compiled using methods that are inadequate. Meanwhile, New York Mayor Eric Adams has declared his campaign to move homeless people out of the city's subway system is complete. But some workers have called Adams' claims crazy, saying overnight homelessness is down, but the problem hasn't gone away. 
And in San Francisco, some businesses say they won't pay taxes until the city takes real action when it comes to tackling the homelessness problem. So what's the answer? Joining us now to weigh in is Donald Whitehead Jr., executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless, and Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never and San Francisco. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. So, Donald, help us understand what exactly is going on in New York with Eric Adams. He has removed the homeless population on the city subways. Where have they gone to? What's the long-term solution there? So, um, not um, certain what the long-term solution um, is, and, and I do think that um, we uh, have not really charted a course that ends homelessness. So. What happens constantly in some of the, our major cities is that people are moved from place to place, and it really actually exacerbates the problem. Um, when you take a person who's kind of taken root in a community and then you move them to another location, never truly ending their homelessness, it actually um, really actually does not do anything that's helpful. It's actually harmful. It ruins relationships that have been created over a period of time. It, it creates a gap in the public trust that's been created between that person experiencing homelessness and the homeless provider system. Uh, many federal dollars are, are frankly just wasted because of it. So I'm not sure that moving people is ever the right solution. Um, it just creates more problems, uh, and none of that ever actually ends homelessness. So if you take a person from the subway and you put them in an encampment, it hasn't ended homelessness. It's just moved it to another place. Michael, what about you? I know you're a critic of a, a lot of the approaches that um, I think Democratic-led municipalities have taken. And, you know, we all know the problem, those of us who live in cities. I, we're here in Washington, D.C. I've seen, it looks to me, the homelessness problem getting a lot worse, a lot more tent cities over time, uh, a lot more obvious mental illness in the streets. Uh, you've written a lot about the problem in California. What is being done that's wrong and what should be done instead? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is to distinguish between two groups of, of people we call homeless. The first are people that are sheltered homeless, people that are in shelters or in permanent supportive housing. And then there's people that are homeless that are living on the streets or on sidewalks or in alleyways. Those are those are folks that we call unsheltered homeless. There's been a big divergence in how different cities treat these two populations. New York traditionally has sheltered somewhere between 96 and 99% of its homeless, whereas in West Coast cities, we've sheltered somewhere closer to a third. So the homeless problem in the West Coast that you've, that's been so dramatic in the last decade has been of the unsheltered. Um, I have to disagree with uh, Donald on this issue. The data is very clear now. We've seen that uh, unsheltered homeless die at a rate three times higher than sheltered homeless do. This is now confirmed by multiple studies, including the most recent mortality data from New York City and Los Angeles between 2020 and 2021. Three times more people, three times more people experiencing homelessness died in Los Angeles than died in New York, even though there are 14,000 fewer homeless people in Los Angeles. We also saw a major cohort study covering a, a single group of people over 10 years in Boston which found the identical numbers, three times more people died when unsheltered than when sheltered. 
So this idea that we should leave people unsheltered, that there's something wrong with moving people, that there's something wrong with shutting down homeless encampments, that's just that's debunked by this data. In fact, it's been debunked for several decades. There's a long body of research showing it's dangerous for people to live outside. The intuitive sense that there's something wrong with letting people sleep outside, eat outside, defecate outside, use drugs publicly, that is correct. You are right to think there's something wrong with that. It's bad for the folks that are living in that situation. The vast majority of them suffer from uh, addiction and or mental illness. But it's also bad for the society. It's bad for the fabric of society to see our fellow citizens treated. And maybe second, because um, you've just been given uh, a really false narrative about the issue of homelessness. So we're not saying people should sleep outside. What we're saying is that if you move people who are outside, unsheltered, as you said, from one place to another, you're still leaving people outside. That's the issue. It's not whether or not um, we should be housing people. Everybody, nobody in the world would think that the right idea wouldn't be to house people. We're saying that if you take a person from the subway and you take them to an encampment, that's not making them, that's not taking them out of homelessness. They're still unsheltered, Mr. Schellenberg. I, that's the, the point I'm trying to make. I agree on that. Is the idea is that we should put them into housing. We don't have enough housing in this country. We should put people in permanent supportive housing. You mentioned that. It has a 90% success rate across the country. So instead of taking that person from the subway and putting them into another encampment, we should be putting them into permanent supportive housing. That's what we're saying. What we're saying is criminalizing people, making people in Tennessee. It's a felony if you're homeless. What does that do to end homelessness? It puts people in the criminal justice system, which exacerbates the issue of homelessness. These cities are not coming up with solutions to house people, whether it's permanent supportive housing or shelter. What they're saying is we're going to move you to another location. You're still going to be homeless, and we haven't done anything to solve the issue. So we're saying solve the issue. I agree with you, people are dying on the street. That's why we need more permanent housing. That's why we need more affordable housing. That's why we need jobs that pay a livable wage. Just talking about it and yelling at people and moving them along does nothing to change that. It actually restarts the issue of getting them housed. They've been contacted by workers paid by the federal government. And then you move them someplace where nobody knows where they are. And the process starts over again. And it's people that make these false narratives all the time, manipulate statistics and, and give this false narrative that is causing harm to people and causing people to die on the streets. So Michael, let's let's talk about this a little bit because I also didn't necessarily see where what you offered uh, co contradicted uh, what Donald had said initially. But what do you say to folks who Obviously, everyone, I think, is united in wanting people to have permanent ho housing for people who need mental health care to get mental health care. In New York, uh, one out of every 10 children in public schools experiences homelessness in the course of the year. I mean, this is a largely sympathetic population, despite how it's often framed in the media. We've been talking about the homeless problem throughout, but it seems like the problem for most of the people who are talking about it is the optics of homelessness as opposed to the investment in getting people who are having to live on the street, not that they want to live on the street, how? So what is the solution in your mind to resolving the underlying issues here? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the difference is, is that traditionally, and I can't speak for my co-panelist, um, but traditionally, advocates, so-called advocates for the homeless have opposed requiring people living on the streets to go into shelters rather than wait for housing. So there's this idea that somehow everybody that lives on the street should have their own apartment unit. That's called housing first or this demand for permanent supportive housing. That's not how New York got 96 to 99 percent of its homeless population sheltered. New York had people, required people to stay in shelters. Um, in California, the reason there's so many people on the street is that they've held up, the, they've made the perfect, the better than, than the good, demanding that everybody have their own apartment unit rather than going into shelters. And that's been unsafe for people. So we agree that everybody needs to come inside. I'm saying you can't wait until you have an apartment unit for every single person that wants one on the street. In fact, we know that just giving apartment units to people that are suffering from um, addiction and mental illness often makes the problem worse. Uh, what we know works is something called contingency management, which is that people, uh, they get shelter and then they earn housing as a uh, incentive for getting off drugs, taking their psychiatric meds, getting reaffiliated with family and friends. That's called contingency management. That's what they do all over the world. That's what I saw work in the Netherlands. That's what they do in Portugal, Japan. There's a tiered system. The biggest study ever done was done in Birmingham, Alabama, where uh, crack addicts were in shelters and then they earned housing when they passed a drug test. And then they would, if they failed it, they would go back to shelter, not to the street, back to shelter. So housing's a reward for good behavior, but everybody has to come inside into the shelter. That's the basic social contract. I think that's what taxpayers expect, but there's been a small group of people who've been very loud voices who've said, no, you can't make anybody go inside unless you have their own apartment for them. That hasn't worked, and that's the reason why you have so many people on the street well, in the And West that comports Coast. with what I've seen in D.C., the efforts to move people from the encampments, from the tents, from the living under bridges uh, into, into apartments is something that D.C. does offer. There's a lot of difficulty in, in first actually persuading the people living in the tents under the bridges um, to, to go along with that, and then a huge problem when they're actually in the apartment if they're underlying addiction or mental health issues haven't been addressed, then they essentially don't stay in the apartment or they, they, they bring the kind of street behavior to the apartment and they get kicked out of the apartment. So, so, so Donald, I want to bring you back into the conversation. It, you know, what about what Michael said and what I've said, are, do, you, do you disagree with, if anything? I agree with probably 100% of that. Um, I've been doing work on homelessness, uh, starting in outreach, where I went out and actually worked with people on the street for almost 30 years. In that 30 years, I've never heard a person who was homeless say that they didn't want an apartment unit. Uh, they may not go into shelters. We need a lot of work to improve shelters. And one other thing I want to just debunk is that there aren't enough shelters in this country. Right. Not once this entire country has enough shelter for the entire homeless population in their community. Uh, on top of that, uh, housing first is not just housing. It's housing and services to support people's mental health issues, 
to support substance abuse issues, and it has a 90% success rate. So your premise was that people go into housing and they get kicked out. That's just not true. 90% of them stay in their housing for a year. That population that is eligible for what's called permanent supportive housing make up about 10 to 20% of the population. The larger part of, the larger portion of the homeless population are people who are episodically homeless. They're homeless for a short period of time and then they move on. So when you create criminalization practices, it not only affects that unsheltered population that uh, the professor talked about before, it affects everybody. So we have people who have worked all their lives and jobs and they don't wanna be homeless, they're forced into homelessness. You can't find one person who will be um, who will tell you that they want to be homeless? It just does not exist. We don't have enough affordable housing. Build Back Better had billions of dollars of affordable housing in it. We didn't pass that. We have a housing problem in this country. It's not a moral issue. And the last time I checked, drug issues, uh, people with substance abuse or behavioral health issues, those are medical conditions. People should not have to earn support to address medical issues. Well, what other medical issue do we do that around? Uh, people do recover from substance abuse and mental health issues. We, we have thousands of examples. They're teachers, they're lawyers, they're PhDs. They got the support they needed, they moved on, and they ended their homelessness. We don't have enough resources in this country to address the structural issues. We have a over-representation of people of color in this population, and we know the issues that, are, that they're facing. Uh, and so the, the myopic solutions that are being talked about now are, are just, uh, they, they fail uh, in, in, in the process of, of logic. It does not make sense to force people in the treatment when only, that only uh, counts for about 10% of the population. It doesn't work. And I'll tell you about New York. He keeps um, quoting New York. You know what's different about New York and Los Angeles? New York has a right to housing. We fought for that. They have a right to shelter. So if you're on the street in New York City, by law, you have to get put in a shelter. There is no right to shelter in Los Angeles. There are, are zoning laws that present, prevent low-income housing from being built. We have a gap of about 7 million units. Only a third of the people who have public housing subsidies can actually get into those housing, uh, into that housing because we don't have enough housing. We have oh, what you're saying, you oppose that law requiring the the people on the streets to be in shelters instead? Because I, I think uh, Michael was saying that, right, that that's a good intervention that has helped. And I thought you were saying that that was not good. What I said is we should not criminalize people. What people what's happening is people are being arrested for sleeping on the street when there's not enough shelter. Yeah, Michael, let me ask you about this because, you know, there are 24,600 shelter beds in L.A., 24,600. There are estimated to be 41,290 homeless people in L.A. So what do you make of this argument that, I mean, you seem to be saying that people should not be on the street. And again, I think that everyone agrees that that's not a suboptimal condition. But the onus that you seem to be placing is on the individual for not finding shelter that it seems doesn't literally no. exist. And that that's puts not. people in the situation to be criminalized. Uh, per, per Donald's point. So what, what's your response to that? So first of all, Supreme Court has held that it's illegal to require people to stop sleeping in public if there are no shelter beds. So this issue is now moot. The Supreme Court has upheld 
the Boise, Idaho decision that says that you cannot make people stop sleeping in public unless you have shelter beds for them. So in my it was book, criminalized and was recently over that, man, that decision man, was recently. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, in my book, I document in San Francisco that, in fact, advocates, so-called advocates for the homeless on West Coast cities. Again, I'm not talking. I don't know. I don't know Donald or what he's done, but they have opposed funding for shelters to so that that money would go to housing, which is much more expensive and takes much longer to build. And so as a result, the U.S. government's housing um, and urban development uh, department finds that New York City has 69,000 shelter beds, while Los Angeles has 17,000, okay? Even though, uh, it's, but that explains the difference. Um, New York has 38,000 housing beds. LA has 38,000 housing beds. So the difference is not between the number of housing beds or housing units for the homeless. It's the difference between the number of shelter beds. New York has... Um, 52,000 more shelter beds than LA. That is what explains why there are so many more people on the street in LA. Why doesn't LA have enough shelter beds? Because the Board of Supervisors and the City Council have opposed building more shelters out of this idea that really what you have to do is give everybody their own apartment unit. That's proven to be so grossly unrealistic um, it would take literally centuries to build enough housing units to supply all the demand. And that assumes that you wouldn't get more people entering into homelessness to get the housing units. Now, in terms of the issue of what works, we know that there was a study by Harvard medical um, scientists in 2021, published just last year, and it found that just 12% of the homeless who received permanent supportive housing remained housed after a decade. And the reason is, and there's a large body of research on this, is that if you don't deal with the underlying drug addiction or mental illness problems, then people will end up becoming homeless again. It's a tragedy. We should not want that to occur. So the rhetoric is, well, of course, you have to have the support there. But that support, when you're dealing with people suffering from addiction or mental illness, means that there has to be a requirement that they go inside. Because there's a lot of people, I mean, I'm shocked. I've live interviewed a lot of people when you say, would you consider going inside, you know, for your own safety? They say, no, I'm fine right here. That's the addiction talking or the mental illness talking. And so what you need is to make the housing contingent. It needs to, you, everyone should get shelter, just to be clear. We're talking about two separate things, shelter, basic clean shelter, and then housing. Everybody should get shelter. That's the law. That's, that's a moral fundamental issue. We all agree on that. But housing should be earned. That's how it works in the Netherlands. That's how it works in Portugal. That's how it works in Japan. That's how it works all over the world. And the reason is, is that you have to give people an incentive, a reason to get into recovery, because often addiction is so powerful, and so is untreated mental illness and a different mechanism. But nonetheless, it's so powerful that people have to have a reason to get recovery, and that's what housing allows. So what Michael, we're, I don't know if we're disagreeing, I'm just saying shelter yeah. needs to be based but I think we're a little bit talking past each other. And I just want to nail a couple of things down, if I may. It, are treatment programs available for everyone who has an addiction issue? No. Is, okay, so, so this seems to me to be the problem. I think that most people would be okay with the idea of some kind of, you know, 
uh, the, the, the best level of housing reserved for people who have gone through some kind of treatment. If it were the case that treatment were actually available for everybody, if, if, the, if the shelter system actually had beds for everybody, which it doesn't, if the shelter system was humane and not a place where people quite reasonably might not want to go because they face different kinds of dangers there, they're subject to their belongings being taken by other residents. These are the kinds of stories that I've heard as I've read about this issue. So it does feel a little bit like an unnecessary antagonism as we're trying to figure out and untangle what is a legitimate problem that is driven by a lack of social support services and a lack of housing, both shelter housing and I think there is a long-term need to build more permanent housing, not just for the uh, homeless population, frankly, but there's a housing crisis more broadly in the United States of America. So should the question we should both be asking be, why there isn't more funding for all of these programs that I think everyone here agrees are necessary from one degree to another. I'll and, let and you weigh in on this, Donald. My, my point is that it, it isn't myopic solutions that'll change the dynamic of how many people are homeless in this country. It's addressing those structural issues. The lack of mental health treatment since deinstitutionalization, the, the lack of support for people with substance abuse issues, that's getting better. Uh, after the opioid crisis, but not there by a long shot. All of those people need housing as well. Uh, people leaving the foster care system, uh, being emancipated. These are large issues that are not being addressed. The idea of putting people in congregate, shelter, congregate shelters uh, at mass, uh, there's a movement away from that because of what we found during COVID. It's not a healthy situation to pack people into shelters uh, in a congregate setting. What we need is housing. What we need is people having the ability. Housing should be a human right in this country. And, you know, our guest keeps quoting the Netherlands. Guess what happens in the Netherlands? They've signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which grants a right to housing. And the only country that has it is, you guessed it, the United States of America. If we had a right to housing, if we build enough housing, we could solve homelessness tomorrow. Homelessness is solvable. We just have to point it in the right directions. We can't just pump people into shelters. And, and one thing I'll say about shelters that I hope everybody realizes is that a shelter is not a home. If you're in a shelter, you're still homeless. We're looking for solutions that end homelessness. Um, it's not just about emptying the streets so it's not, not a blight on some elected official. It's about real solutions. And so the, the solutions that I've heard today, um, we all want to get people off the street, but we want to do it in a way that helps them with their quality of life. It moves people on. That Harvard statistic, um, you should also know that one of the goals when people get into permanent housing is for them to move on to other kinds of housing, not to stay in that housing with services forever, to start to heal themselves and get back into the normal flow of society. And it happens all the time. And, and I'm, I, I'm not saying this because um, I've read a study from Harvard. I actually was homeless myself. Uh, since then, I've won an Emmy. Um, I've been able to provide housing for other people. And that happens every day. I have a woman who was on the streets of D.C. for most of her life. Uh, two years ago, she graduated from Georgetown University. She's now started her own business. If we care for people, if we do this in a compassionate way and we provide those structural issues and the structural changes that are necessary, we can solve this problem tomorrow. We just have to be willing to do it in a loving, caring way.
Michael, I want to give you the last word here. Look, I would like to build more housing uh, for a variety of reasons, a lower housing costs for everyone. Uh, my understanding and from looking at this is that uh, part of the difficulty is regulatory, is, is local uh, and, you know, neighborhood associations fighting uh, redevelopment, fighting, you know, t tearing down old buildings, building new ones. Um, I, I, I think I agree with uh, with what Donald was saying that you know if we ideally we should absolutely have more housing uh, but but that's a hard thing to I mean California has had a, a lot of trouble right uh, building just housing in general for any reason let alone for the homeless yeah I mean look we need more housing there's not enough housing I think everybody agrees on that I've been an advocate for housing for a long time but if we're talking about how to deal with this so-called homeless crisis we know what works. It's the same thing that works everywhere in the world, is that you need everybody to come inside because if people are outside, they die at a rate three times higher than when they're inside, that when they come inside, they're going to come inside and they have a right, an absolute moral and legal and constitutional right to safe, clean and basic shelter. And that's it. And then beyond that, if they want to get into recovery, then I think there is um, a good reason for taxpayers to subsidize housing for them. But if you'll notice what Donald was doing here, and it's very typical with, with so-called advocates for the homeless, they mix these things up. People have a right to clean, basic, safe shelter. They do not have a right to their own apartment unit in the most expensive real estate markets in the United States. We can't afford to just do that, particularly because it actually makes people's addiction and mental illness worse when you just give them an apartment as a reward for being homeless because they're so sick. In fact, you have to give the, the housing must be reserved for the people that are on a path to recovery. If you are giving housing to people because they are sick with addiction and mental illness, you will make them more sick. You will make them more mentally ill. That is the experience of Los Angeles and San Francisco. And this fantasy that if you give people an apartment, if you give an apartment to people who are sick with mental illness and addiction, that they will then miraculously recover on their own by offering but, group Michael, therapy and buprenorphine, that's deeply irresponsible. And that's I, why we've had the chaos on the streets. So it has to be contingent. It's called contingency management. It is the most mainstream. It is accepted by the Veterans Affairs. It's accepted by Drug Policy Alliance. Read up on the scientific peer review literature. Contingency management is the most accepted form of treatment for people suffering from drug addiction or mental illness. It's also the right social contract. Taxpayers have an obligation to provide basic clean shelter to our fellow citizens. People do not have a right to their own apartment unit. We're, we do have some need to provide subsidized housing for people who need it. My aunt had schizophrenia. She was in a group home. She did very well. There's some small segment of people that need to live in a group home. There may be some others for whom housing is a reward for progress towards recovery. But giving apartment units to people as a reward for being sick with, with mental illness or addiction and homeless is absolutely the wrong incentive. My, Michael, this I appreciate that, but I'm not sure anybody here is really arguing that. I think we established that there is an effect, an effect in, in, a, in actuality, enough support for everyone to get mental health. So to be, to make, to be fair, wait, Donald wait just actually, excuse me, but Donald just actually said, he, if you listen to what he said, he said, we shouldn't force people into shelters. We shouldn't crowd people into shelters. What? He made it sound like that was somehow inhumane. It's more humane to require that people get basic clean shelter and earn their own housing 
rather than to make them stay on the streets until you can get everybody their own housing, which is what we've done in California and the West Coast. Donna, we shouldn't let you respond. With what I said, I said, and you talk about Martin versus Boise. People are violating that. Look, look at the laws that well, have just yeah. Tennessee and Missouri. Uh, that is a, a circuit uh, decision that doesn't affect those communities. Uh, in Tennessee, it's now a felony with up to six years in jail for camping outside. In I'm Missouri, against that. They, they're making. I'm not, they're, I'm not defending that. I'm defending what New York that, had been doing. That's the only way you can force people inside is to criminalize them. You're well, forcing. No, it's not. I'm people. sorry, that's just not true. Well, well look, I, How well, else can you force? Tell me, tell me. I, I shadowed. Okay, I shadowed a social. I shadowed social workers in the Netherlands, and I saw them get people inside, and they didn't show right up. To, they, look, they, look, they would I, say. I, I, Unfortunately, we, we do have to wrap. I do think it's a really interesting question that is being teed up right now. How do you force people inside without there being some, you know, application of police force, which is a, the criminalization that we're talking about? I think that what is yeah. good about this conversation is that we agreed about a lot of the fundamentals. And I look forward to continuing a conversation perhaps with you both about the, the strategy and what is needs to be done on a base level in terms of funding and able, in order for us to get to the goals that I think we all share. Thank you to you both, Michael and Donald, for, for joining us today. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Um, I'm very passionate, and I'm sorry if I got a little heated on this issue. No, no, no. I have heated discussions uh, here all the time. You should see Brianna and I go at it. All right, thank you both so much, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, the state's Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate, is calling on President Biden to decriminalize marijuana, saying, quote, it's long past time that we finally decriminalize marijuana. The president needs to use his executive authority to begin descheduling. I would love to see him do this prior to his visit to Pittsburgh. This is just common sense, and Pennsylvania's overwhelmingly support decriminalizing it. Amen. Senior political correspondent at The Hill, Hannah Trudeau, tweeted, interesting development from Fetterman. Can he be the Dem to get Biden to change his stance on legalizing marijuana. He plans on discussing this with the president in Pennsylvania. Many have pushed him on this. Policy is widely popular nationally, and he's seen his approval go up lately. Here to weigh in is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Teslin, welcome back to the show. Always glad to be here. Thank you. What are your thoughts on marijuana legalization? Well, my thoughts are the same of how they've always been before they took these polls and will be until they lay my body down. Uh, this is not about polls. This is about a promise. I want to be very crystal clear about that. If you allow me a moment to read uh, directly from the website of the Biden-Harris uh, agenda for black people, mm. uh, the plan, the Lift Every Voice plan, it says, quote in, unquote, he will end once and for all the federal crack and powder cocaine disparity decriminalize the use of cannabis and automatically expunge, let me say it again, automatically expunge all prior cannabis use of convictions and end all incarceration for drug use alone and instead divert individuals to drug courts and treatment. He will continue to eliminate mandatory minimums and the death penalty. So this is not, again, about a poll. This is not about me helping out the Republicans. This is about holding President Biden accountable to his promise, not only to all of his voters, but in particularly black voters who saved Joe Biden. 
It was Joe Biden that said, quote, in unquote, I owe black voters. It was black voters that saved Joe Biden in the primary without black voters in South Carolina. He would not be president. So if nothing else, he should keep his promise. And secondly, he owes this because let us all remember, and no worries, I'm here to remind you, it was <laughs> Joe Biden that wrote the 94 crime bill that locked up black men disproportionately. There are more black men in prison now than those who were enslaved in 1850. And a great deal amount of those came from marijuana. And I want to be clear, according to the ACLU, let's throw some facts out there. 52% of all drug arrests come from marijuana. And I also want to say this for the social media comment caucus that I know can't wait to comment on this. No, not all black people care about marijuana. Not all black people smoke marijuana. I do not. Uh, but it is important that we understand that this has been something that has disproportionately affected black people. And he was a part of of making sure uh, that that happened to our community. So I want to continue to, to push this line for him, for his black voters. And also again, not all black people smoke weed. Let's be clear about <laughs> that. We have many issues that we're concerned about, but this is something he should do, Bree. And just plenty, of, plenty of white people, people do smoke weed. Uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, look, I, mean, I think that's an important clarified. point, Teslin, because I mean, this is, this is part of the argument that's been made by a lot of criminal justice advocates that, you know, all the studies show that black people and white people use marijuana at the same rates, but when you have uh, increased policing of black neighborhoods for all kinds of structural reasons that we can talk about at another day, you just get more arrests. So you know, a lot of conservatives, a lot of you know people across the spectrum are concerned about Fourth Amendment rights, search and seizure, people being patted down and rounded up in the street like Gestapo. The effects of having the police routinely invade your life, raid your homes, pat you down, search your car, is that if everyone's doing something at the same rate, that the people who are being searched more simply get caught more and locked up at higher rates. And to your point, Robbie, that you make on the show a lot, the public is paying for the mass incarceration of these people for nonviolent offen offenses that everybody uh, is doing. In fact, a recent Gallup poll is showing that while Americans are nearly evenly split over whether marijuana has a positive effect on society at large, with 49% saying yes and 50% saying no, Americans view marijuana more favorably than alcohol. 53% of Americans say marijuana use has a positive effect on people, while just 45% said it has a negative effect. In the same July poll, 75% said alcohol negatively affects society, and 71% said it has a negative effect on those who consume it. When they're clearly right, because alcohol obviously has more, and, and I'm not, I'm, I, I drink, I'm not in favor of criminalizing <laughs> alcohol by any stretch of the imagination, right. but alcohol clearly has a more negative impact on our society than marijuana, which, like alcohol kills people in car crashes, it, it can contribute to sort of addiction and all sorts of bad things. Marijuana is not addictive and has killed no one. And moreover, Tesla, I take your point that the polls are not what's driving you here. It's uh, that Joe Biden made campaign promises and also is responsible for the crisis that we're we're dealing with now with respect to uh, mass incarceration, but also 60% of Americans overall favor uh, legalization or decriminalization of marijuana. That being the case, why do you think it is that Joe Biden is dragging his feet on this? Well, again, because we're not holding them accountable. I appreciate the polls and I appreciate what, who's in favor and who's not in favor. And those are great uh, to have think tank discussions, but let's talk about politics. Politics is about making a promise and being held for their 
promise, held accountable, bottom line. If you say I want everybody to have red shirts and wear red, red shirts on Tuesday, I'm going <laughs> to hold you accountable for that. So talking about the theory and why it's important, my mom was a big proponent of it. Uh, she passed away on the campaign trail with cancer. She was trying mm. to figure out how, because at that particular time in Oklahoma, they did, uh, it was not legal. And she was trying to figure out how to get medication from Colorado. So mm. I could give you a million stories on how and what people favor and not favor. Let's talk about the fact that this man made this promise. Mm. It is literally on the website, lift every voice and sing until the heavens ring, mm. literally on the website. So this is a matter of making people accountable for what they said they're going to do, whether it affects me personally or not. When we talk about student debt, it doesn't matter if it affects me personally or not. I have $100,000 in student debt. Mm. This is about you made a promise. So, okay, he gave 10,000 on student debt. If you said you're gonna decriminalize uh, uh, marijuana, that's what you should do, regardless of what the polls say. You don't see people on the right catering to the polls. They could give a damn, excuse my language about the polls. <laughs> they push the line according to what they promised they said they were gonna do for their constituents. And we have to do the same. And I wanna be clear to the black leaders in particularly, the black leaders, because of those are the leaders that I work with. I can't speak to everybody else. I've only lived in one community my entire life, and that's called the black community. And black leaders who continue to let this slide, but you got all the time in the day to come back and do Crime Bill 2.0, but say nothing about this. We see you, and it is time that we start getting more active and doing what I say, don't chase them, replace them, and let's start pushing the line politics until something happens, and let's start replacing these people. We don't have time for polls. We need promises made and promises kept. And especially because what we're asking Joe Biden to do is just is uh, is get it off the schedule, whatever this uh, it is on the controlled substances um, list. It is it is listed. It, it's scientifically inaccurate. It's listed among other you know addictive deadly, harmful drugs, and it is listed there as being just as dangerous as that. All we're saying is that's not true. It should not be a controlled substance to that degree. And then, then it's really just letting, you know, letting states and local municipalities experiment with whatever marijuana policies they want. Like, it's legal here. It's very legal here in Washington, D.C., but you have this ambiguity because technically the federal government still treats it in, in, in such a such a manner. It's a, it's a federalism issue and uh, in some sense. I mean, it's an issue, so many but different we, issues. But we don't want to make this a state's issue, just a complete state's issue, because that allows him to be off the hook, to be able to say, well, let's just give it to the states. No. Uh, number one, he can direct federal law enforcement to refrain from prosecuting marijuana charges, issue a blank pardon to those, to the thousands that have already been convicted that he helped lock up. So let's not, because when we do that, oh, let's just give it to the states, because he's saying that now. He's already saying it. Let's give it to the states. No, it's not give it to the states. It is what this man promised, flat out. So well, do whatever of, he can do on the federal level. And yeah, let states determine what they want to do. But we're talking about what Joe Biden's going to do on the federal level when he was running around going state to state, asking folks to galvanize behind him to win this election. So that's what this is about. Speaking of locking people up for using marijuana, podcaster Joe Rogan blasted Kamala Harris yesterday for defending WNBA's Brittany Griner, who's being detained in Russia, obviously, for being found guilty of attempting to smuggle narcotics into the country, despite the vice president's prosecuting people for similar charges. Let's watch. Hypocrisy about the Brittany Griner uh, situation was so egregious in this country, where Kamala Harris is talking about how horrible it is that Brittany Griner's in jail. Well, you put she people in jail. It. Yeah. You did. Thousands of people in yeah. jail for marijuana. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, and they were, that was like the student uh, loan debt forgiveness. That's great. 
but how come you guys didn't exonerate people that were in jail for marijuana when you said you were going to? They said that they were going to make marijuana federally legal. They said they were going to exonerate prisoners who are in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. That's what they said. None of that has happened. And to be clear, Brittany Griner her, is in jail for smuggling point two or having 0.02 ounces of cannabis oil on her. She says she didn't realize it was on her. 0.2 ounces of cannabis oil. Certainly, uh, Kamala Harris, as California's top cop, has locked people up for less. Teslin, what do you make of the hypocrisy? Well, I mean, I make of it that any prosecutor has to enforce the law that's given to them. So uh, whether she agreed with that law or didn't agree with that law, uh, I can't speak to why, you know, she decided to enforce that. The numbers are the numbers. But it again, it all plays into this entire uh, system that we're talking about that started on the federal level, in particular with the 94 crime bill. So as far as if she had a choice to prosecute or not prosecute, why she didn't make that choice, the bottom line is where are we right now? And right now it's called the Biden-Harris administration. And right now the Biden-Harris administration promised to decriminalize marijuana and promised to be able to uh, go back and help those who have already been penalized. So what, what she did uh, then was then, we're talking about the now. And so if they do nothing on the now and nobody holds them accountable on the now, then we are on the hook uh, for not uh, pushing that an issue and demanding uh, that they do mm. more. Well, it seems to me that if you name a, a, a policy for black people after the black national anthem, lift every voice and sing, you should probably have some uh, desire to follow through or you have a lot of egg on your face and a, and a huge responsibility uh, for a large population that, to your point, Teslin definitely did uh, get you elected. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can I say this since you brought that up? They need to rename that policy. Stop mm. naming things after Negro spirituals. Mm. Uh, like Malcolm X said, it's time to stop swinging. Stop, time to stop singing. It's time to start swinging. So mm. I was never a fan of, of that, that title in the first place. Thanks mm. for having me. Thank you for being here, Teslin. And we will have more rising for you right after this. Over the weekend, a federal judge said she's inclined to grant former President Donald Trump's request that a special watchdog be appointed to supervise the DOJ's review of documents seized during the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago. U.S. District Court Judge Aileen Cannon also ordered the DOJ to provide a more detailed list of the items taken from the former president's estate, as well as a status update of the department's review of the materials. This comes after the Justice Department officials suggested in a filing that Trump's request for a special master comes too late because the department's review of the documents has already happened. Joining us now to weigh in on these latest updates is Trump family documentarian and director of Unprecedented, Alex Holder. Alex, welcome to Rising. Good morning. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. What do you make of these latest items in the news? But I think with Trump, you know, there's this there's this moment where it's like it's not actually that surprising because it's always it, you expect this of him, right? But then at the same time, when these things actually happen, i.e., a former president of the United States has his house raided by the FBI, it's like really. I mean, so yeah, you know, I, I think for me, Trump is quite a he's, he's quite easy to understand, right? In the sense that. These documents that he took with him to his home, they have his name on it. So in his mind, they belong to him. And why should he give them to anyone else, right? Isn't I don't think it's you know th this idea that the, the conspiracy theories that he's you know selling secrets to the Russians. I think he's literally doing what he's been doing a lot, which is he's showing it off 
to the guests that are at his house at this members club. So, you know, I think that that's that's who he is. And it is obviously pretty ridiculous that he's doing that. And, you know, he'll face the consequences for his actions. Well, it does seem to be to be a bit of a win-win for there to be an oversight to the extent that there are people who think that this is a politically motivated search, that the import of the documents that he has in his possession is being overstated to try to paint Donald Trump as someone who is not just negligent but treasonous. If there is someone overseeing the process that can give the imprimatur of legitimacy that might be lacking for some conservatives, it seems like a good thing. Uh, you know, would you agree or do you think that's some, some kind of admission that the FBI is uh, on, a, on a witch hunt here? I mean, I think if we go down this road of the FBI being politically motivated, I think that's a very dangerous conversation to have. And I, and I think that the only reason we're even saying this is because of four years of Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it's madness to think that the FBI is politicized in any way. And what is what is bigger than top secret, right? As in, you know, people are saying it's, it's exaggerated. I mean, it's, it's been admitted that these documents have the highest classification in you know, the American system. So you can't really get higher than, you know, top secret or SCI or whatever. So clearly these documents should not have been kept at his home. And, and, and the idea that this is politically motivated, it's just the typical Trump strategy, right? We're going to use this technique to try and garner more support, you know, anti-establishment, etc. I mean, you know, it's the typical demagogue, right? But at the end of the day, he kept these documents incorrectly in his private residence when asked for over a year to return them to the appropriate places. So then to say, oh, they're now off, they're now going to force entry into my home. Uh, and the reason for that is because it's politically motivated is absurd. I mean, he had every chance to to give them back to, uh, to to the archives and to the various authorities. I don't, I don't think the idea that the FBI is politically motivated is absurd uh, whatsoever, given you know their behavior on a number of subjects, including uh, something we've talked about on the show a lot, the Hunter Biden uh, laptop story. Now we have whistleblowers coming forward saying the FBI slow rolled that investigation on purpose, thwarted it, um, told you know gave uh, some indication to social media companies on a variety of subjects that they should be wary for Russian disinformation. Told 50 of them, former law enforcement including the FBI, signing a letter saying that this is Russian disinformation or looks like Russian disinformation. Um, it looks politically motivated to me. Maybe the Mar-a-Lago raid is not politically motivated, but yeah, one of the, the reasons question. people are having a hard time right. believing it is because uh, I think a lot of the actions by the FBI do look politically motivated. Now, I think the FBI has, it's, it's probably quite difficult for them to defend themselves in this, right? I mean, this is, you know, these are ongoing investigations, and I think we only get to see a, a piece of this, right? And I think if we know more about what's going on behind the scenes, which would obviously be difficult for them to, to reveal because it would scupper their investigations, it perhaps would look less politically motivated. You know, we're looking at this from a very specific point of view. But at the end of the day, you know, I mean, this, this is not with respect to... Firstly, I mean, Hunter Biden is, 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 is really an irrelevance in the grand scheme of things. You know, he's not politically involved in any shape or form whatsoever in the administration. He's the president's son. And, and frankly, you know, this is a conversation about the former president of the United States keeping classified documents in a, in a members club. This is not about you know, the, the, the president's son who, who has you know, a, a somewhat colourful or I don't know what you know, life, right? I mean, this is... 
this is a, a completely yeah we can go down the water battery you know game if we want but at the end of the day i think yeah i mean i i've been to mar-a-lago and and it's probably the the last place you would ever want to keep anything uh sensitive and well, this is a great issue. why why do you say that what what is your experience of mar-a-lago for those of us who haven't had the privilege so i mean so firstly it's actually very beautiful um and it is a very large estate but it is a members club where people can go and play golf and, and have dinner and lunch and enjoy themselves and they can also invite guests as well to this place so it, it is a very open place when i was there it i had total free reign all the way through the, the, the building that i was in the you know, secret service are there to protect the president but it's not they're not it's not like in the white house but they're everywhere um and you know the, the 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 guests are so close to the president that in fact during the interview at one point uh he actually stopped the interview and asked one of his assistants to go out and tell everyone to be quiet mm. uh, because they were literally on the other side of the door so you know people are roaming, roaming around freely and he loves walking around and seeing the guests because every time he goes outside they all like to a round of applause so mm. and he loves the adoration so he goes out people are having dinner or lunch They'll do a round of applause. They'll go back inside. They'll go out again. So yeah, it, it is an interesting uh, experience. It's also his pride and joy. He he loves it there. It is something that he. It's, it's really it is his home, and the idea that it was um, raided is obviously something that's affected him and w- would affect him very significantly. But yeah, I mean he. It, it is a complete free for all, and the idea that there's anything secure in that place is ludicrous. Uh, okay, but I, I don't think there's been much suggestion so far that he, like, you know, someone could pick up one of these papers and somehow launch a nuclear weapon or something. It, they've been cla- they were classified <laughs> and improperly taken out of, but the FBI has made, you know, no claim that uh, it, it seems, I mean, you were, you were suggesting that the Hunter Biden stuff is, you know, kind of trivial or kind of a sideshow, and I, you know, I take that point because it, it's salacious and it's not, you know, it's, I mean, it's to the extent it's for drug content, I, contact, I don't even think that should be illegal anyway, but this is similarly a not, like, it's a, it might be a procedural crime because he didn't perhaps do everything he was supposed to be. I mean, he will say that, and then his allies will say that he is the one who gets to decide whether papers are classified. Now, he should go through the right procedures, not just say, I've declassified them in my head or whatever some mm-hmm. of his a- allies said, but that sounds to me similarly like not a, something that perhaps is technically a violation of records laws that he himself made stricter in order to screw Hillary Clinton, but not a kind of calamity or national security crisis or risk the way some are making it out to be. I agree. I think that a lot of the time there is a huge amount of hyperbolic language used mm. with respect to Donald Trump. And sometimes I think it's actually not the cleverest move because there are actually very serious issues that I believe that he's responsible for that are far more significant and and that that definitely i agree with that point but at the end of the day though we have laws right i mean that's this half this country runs and if you pick and choose the the laws that you want to follow just because they're not you know, particularly important or they're not as exciting then i think again you're going to go down a very dangerous path at the end of the day i i, I agree that there is a huge look yes i i don't think that the 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 random fella that's going to play golf has access to nuclear codes or could fire off a nuclear missile i think that's ludicrous i also think it's ludicrous to think that he's that trump is doing something you know i.e showing these documents to, to foreign adversaries as well what i think is is more serious is the fact that, that donald trump has consistently and always believed that he's above rules and the laws 
than everyone else, right? Mm. He approached the presidency in the same way that he approached being the CEO of his private company. And that's something that's incredibly important to realize. And you know, if he's doing this, then what else is he doing and what else has he done? He never saw the presidency in the same procedures as his predecessors had. Uh, and, and that's clear, right, in terms of the way that he has consistently denied the results of the 2020 election. So it, 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 I think all of these little things add up to very big to a very big thing. But there's also very big things that he's done as well that are very serious. But yes, I think sometimes the exaggeration or the uh, hysteria is probably not the most beneficial thing to do in these circumstances. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Been a pleasure. We'll have more rising right after this. Will House Republicans impeach Joe Biden if they take back control? That's a possibility, according to The Hill's Mike Lillis. Several conservatives have already introduced impeachment articles in the current Congress, of course. Those articles accuse Biden of committing high crimes in his approach to several issues, including border enforcement, COVID, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. At least eight proposals have been brought. All will expire at the end of this Congress, but some sponsors have vowed to revisit them Next year, obviously, with the Democrats in control, these won't see the light of day. Right, but the we're talking about the that, House of Representatives here. Right. The hope is that if they do regain the House, as people have predicted, although I think that's increasingly on shaky ground, it's a possibility in a way that it wasn't at least right. before that Democrats might actually keep the House, um, that that will be a priority for Republicans. What do you think of that? So Ted Cruz said this on a podcast the other day. I do think there's a he was asked if they would if uh, if the House would impeach if, if Republicans took control of it again. Yeah, I do think there's a chance of that, whether it's justified or not. <laughs> Bold admission. I would hope we would do it if it's justified. And then he says, Democrats weaponized impeachment. They used it for partisan purposes to go after Trump because they disagreed with him. No, I think they, you know, you could maybe, so the first impeachment, I think was a little dicier as an issue, um, I- the one involving this supposed influence um, that uh, that um, Trump vis-a-vis Rudy Giuliani put in Ukraine to maybe do something about Hunter Biden. I, I say it's dicey because um, all of diplomacy is trying to get other countries to do things that are in U.S. interests. So it wasn't, to me, like necessarily improper that we tried to it was that the thing he was trying to get out of the Ukrainians was itself improper, was an investigation or some kind of declaration. It was a little thorny, in my view, that mm-hmm. specific one. The second time, no, I, as I've said a million <laughs> times on the show, I don't, know, don't care if you don't want to hear it, I think the impeachment was completely justified and she should have been removed from office for the things he said that resulted in people storming the Capitol. Mm-hmm. That was different. There, there hasn't, <laughs> there's not been a, 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 a random mob attack that has occurred yet because of uh, crazy things Joe Biden has said. Now, I'm for, as a libertarian, I think basically every person, every president, you know, all the way back to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington have abused their authority in some way. Sure. And, you know, yeah, impeach them all, fine. I mean, not really, because that would be kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there's impeachment and then there's. But presidents always violate their authority somehow. I, I think. Uh, I think Joe Biden's uh, federal um, uh, vaccine mandate for uh, employees, which was then reversed by the Supreme Court, was a was a gross abuse of his authority. Now, impeachment is supposed to be for you know something, high, not high just crimes. doing something yeah, that is then ruled unconstitutional, which is something every president Everybody has done. Does. Yeah, look, 
I think that all of the impeachments have been political to a certain degree, right back to Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. I don't think that anybody really imagined that that was like a national security issue or some significant state uh, transgress- transgression on his part. Um, so there is something, I think, fair enough about conservatives saying, we're going to do one, two. If you want to spend this time in the media cycle, uh, you know, ginning up ire against the president of the United States, even if you know it's not going anywhere, we ha- it's well within our rights. Maybe this is the new normal. Maybe every president now from, from time of memorial just has to go through an impeachment trial. And that would be pretty bad, I think, for our society if if um, that would that will be like banana republic stuff. If like every time the 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 other political party retakes power, they just that's just what you do one day. Hey, good to see you all again. Now we're we're, we're yeah. moving forward with impeachment of the president because they're a member of the other party. Yeah. That would be very bad. And, and is, is this the precedent that we set? I mean, they don't like Biden's border policy. There isn't even really right. an allegation that there's anything improper about it. They don't like it. So if a Republican implements a border policy, if the next Trump decides to build, build a wall and a, and a Democrat says, we're going to impeach you over building a wall. I mean, this does get to be parody at a certain point, and it certainly doesn't help the ratcheting up a political discourse that we've been talking about a little bit today. And Republicans should should uh, should get it through their, their heads that if you don't like the—you have to defeat Biden— in the election, you have to defeat <laughs> Democrats in the election, and then you can reverse these policies. Like mm-hmm. actually do policy, mm-hmm. reverse policies. They don't, they don't legislate according. To, they don't do the things they say they're going to do because they just like to complain about it. They just like to tweet about it. Uh, Democrats do things on occasion. On a very not enough for occasion. you, but they do things. Republicans just whine about everything, and it's so frustrating. This is a debate Kim and I used to have all the time. She's like, "No, I think Republicans are doing things. I think they're just saying they'll do things. They don't actually do things." Yeah, like what was Trump's signature policy? This. trillion tax cut, the overwhelming majority of which went to the top fraction of income earners in the United States. It's the one thing Republicans always do, sure, tax cut. Right. Which and I support. It's, it's fine. But, you know, I would love for Donald Trump and Republicans to advocate for tax cuts for poor and right. working class people since they are, are now styling themselves Donald as Trump didn't, didn't. His signature campaign promise was the wall. He didn't build that. He didn't build a wall. And frankly— And to get out of Afghanistan. He didn't do that he either. He didn't do that either. So, look, I would love it. I would love it if Republicans did things and they actually embraced the kind of populism that they say they care about by actually taxing the rich. A wealth tax is enormously popular. Put that IRS to work and actually— Actually target them to the richest Americans. If you have concerns about the deficit, tax the rich to shrink the deficit. Tax the rich to, you know, uh, pay for these wars or even better, end the wars and bring people home. I mean, that is a kind of legitimate populism that I think a lot of Americans can get behind, and it's right there on Republicans' lap. And instead, they're doing things like complaining about the student loan policy without proposing anything on the alternative in terms of fixing the underlying problem or dealing with the crisis that's facing students right now. And eventually, people are going to get sick up to your and you're phrasing Republicans whining and hand-wringing about things without proposing alternatives. They should propose things. We have ideas for them. Apart from impeachment. (laughs) Alternatives that aren't just impeaching Joe Biden. Which I don't know that they're actually going to do. Again, they say they'll do it, um, but the the members of Congress who have brought forward, I think we're talking about like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, type people who have brought these, uh, you know, these arguments for Now, if Joe Biden (laughs) commits... So, so you, it is it is proper, it is appropriate to subject elected officials to to sanctions, to impeachment, to criminal charges. To like, we want to hold our government officials more accountable, not less accountable. Yeah. But doing that and not having it take on a tinge of just witch hunts against political opponents, 
it can be a difficult um, uh, line to walk. Yeah, and it's going to become the boy who cries wolf. God forbid right. that somebody actually does something that meets the standards. Well, I think for that's the kind of the Trump story a little bit, honestly, yeah. between the two impeachments. Yeah. The first one was a lot more of a of wolf. There's not really a wolf. It's, it was kind of not great, but does it act? Is it? Versus the second one, which was a pretty clear violation of like all the norms of, of that we've ever had, and uh, and some people I think did tune it out because well yeah. well you just do this to every time you're mad at Trump because they didn't do it right. before. I think that's right. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. A new study from the Brookings Institute suggests that a third of unfilled jobs in the U.S. remain that way due to disabilities caused by long COVID. According to the report, 16 million Americans between the ages of 18 and 65 have reported experiencing COVID symptoms long after infection, and 2 million to 4 million of those people are currently out of work as a consequence. Our next guest has made the case that it is not too late to invest in understanding and combating long COVID. Professor of Molecular Medicine at Scripps Research Institute and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, Eric Topol joins us now to break down what we know about long COVID so far. Welcome to Rising, Doctor. Thank you. Great to be with you. All right. So. I think there is a lot of skepticism about long COVID because there is sometimes a conversation that happens without talking about the concrete numbers. And there are people who say things like, well, how did we know that these aren't, um, you know, comorbidities or these aren't things that would have happened or that are caused by other factors other than COVID? What do you say to people who, who have that kind of skepticism? Well, it's really denialism, not so much skepticism anymore. Uh, we have many good studies recently, particularly one from the Netherlands, uh, where they had tracking of thousands of people before they ever had COVID and compared them to matched controls. And one in eight people developed long COVID once they had an infection that lasted for at least five months. So that was before wide-scale vaccination and Omicron. So it's less now. We know that because there's some protective effect from vaccines and boosters, and Omicron is not as bad for long COVID as prior variants. However, even if it was half, uh, the numbers substantiate 6% of people who were infected uh, gets you well north of 10 million people as the Brookings Institute came up with 16 million. It's a big deal. Uh, another reason, I think, for the skepticism, I, I admit I've been uh, somewhat skeptical of the whole concept for a long time, the range of symptoms that so-called sufferers of it describe, it, you know, so vast, everything from, from things that sound like, sure, they might, it might be something that would take a while to recover from if you have a bad bout of COVID, uh, you know, uh, 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 respiratory issues, uh, cough, fatigue, um, not having taste and smell come back. And then also uh, a kind of, uh, 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 you know, listlessness or inability to work or kind of more neuro neurological type things. Uh, and I mean, the stress of going through COVID, that, that kind of thing. Is this typical of illnesses? For are, are there are there comparison illnesses where there there's a long, you know, whatever that illness is that produces you know such a wide range of of effects, effects that are hard to understand how or why they would be connected to that specific disease, a respiratory disease. Right. Well, this is part of what we've seen with post-viral syndromes. Notably, myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, known as ME-CFS as abbreviation. But it can occur with other viruses uh, for long duration, particularly involving uh, brain fog, 
uh, and other symptoms that suggest uh, a hyperinflammation. That's really what a common thread uh, of long COVID is. We see inflammation uh, of the nervous system, both in the brain and in the peripheral nervous system, that is the autonomic nervous system. And so it has occurred certainly and documented in other viral syndromes, but the point here is that we have so many millions of people that it's just become uh, you know, so uh, palpable. Uh, beyond that, of course, these symptoms kind of partition in different clusters. So some people have more of this postural tachycardia when they stand up, their heart rate goes up to 120, 140, and they just don't have the same exercise capability, whereas others have more of these um, immune dysfunction signs. So, you know, it isn't just one thing that is the same for all people with long COVID. It varies. I think that's a really important point, you know, that there are physiological outcomes, consequences that can be tested for. So you're saying that people, you know, who say that they're presenting with these symptoms, they've been tested and diagnosed with things like tachycardia, you know, accelerated heartbeat. When we talk about the, the brain fog, you know, how are physicians assessing what is in fact brain fog and what is, you know, hypoglycemia or someone just didn't, you know, get enough sleep that night and things like that? Right. Well, as I mentioned, when you have, you know, very large studies that track people before they have COVID mm-hmm. uh, and then after with, with matched controls, that's the best way to do that. And we saw that with a remarkable brain uh, MRI scan study that came out of the UK where they showed atrophy of the brain uh, and signs of inflammation of the brain uh, as well as cognitive decline. And that was recently verified by another study, similar study uh, from Brazil. That's with having MRI scans, the UK study, before people had COVID because they did a very large study called the UK Biobank. So the point here is that there's unequivocal uh, tracking of Mm. what people, the symptoms with objective data. And in fact, the recent Yale study showed 94% tracking of the people with these symptoms with objective signs. So mm-hmm. low cortisol, low ACTH hormone, that localizes the problem to the brain, the pituitary gland. So there, there's no more denying that long COVID exists, but we have to help these people. So, and, and what is the... So no, please. Yeah, I was going to say, so what are we learning is the best way to uh to to cure or address or i guess prevent long COVID? obviously we're you know we're still debating various mitigation efforts to slow the spread of of COVID. although i think there's been a you know a wider admission for many public health officials that keeping whole you know keeping cases at bay became a lot harder with omicron you know we can't keep all of society shut down forever we're not we're not keeping all of society shut down in, in virtually any respect uh but vaccination has helped so far is what is what it sounds like you're saying and is there a a prospect that uh, you know whatever new vaccines are going to be rolled out hopefully to combat the newer strains maybe you know based on different uh, molecular properties for people who are concerned about mrna uh what you know what's the the long-term prospect for addressing this Right. Well, firstly, preventing it. The only way we know to prevent long COVID is not to get COVID. Uh, So that's a problem when we relax all of our ways that we know to reduce the likelihood of infections, transmission. But also there's this cumulative hit. We know that 
the studies that have looked at people with second infections of COVID or third, their chance of developing long COVID is increased. Hmm. Vaccinations and boosters do help, but the, the magnitude of the benefit is varies on the different studies from 15 to 50% reduction. Your point about this new BA5 booster, will that help? It might because, you know, it's addressing the current dominant strain of the virus. So it's possible. We don't know yet. But the main thing is we have no treatments. There have been no big studies yet with any treatment that's been validated. And so there's so many people suffering, as you mentioned, uh, up to four million Americans that are out of work because of long COVID. And so we need a treatment, but there's just not enough work being done to get one uh, so that we know for sure that it will help. Dr. Topol, this is, I mean, this is a difficult issue, I think, for many people, including many viewers of this program, because the political implications of taking long COVID seriously are rather vast. So much of the arguments about whether schools should open and what kind of intervention should be put in place at school before they can open have to do with this understanding that the risks of COVID to children are relatively low. If long COVID is thrown in there as an additional risk and, long, and children are expected to get COVID multiple times because of their presence in school, largely unmasked, then that changes the calculus. And I wonder what you make of what might be a kind of resistance to talking about or really acknowledging long COVID because of these political implications that don't necessarily follow, but that could follow taking long COVID more seriously. Well, first, I think the data for children, particularly as you get younger and younger in children, the chance of getting long COVID is, is much more remote. Yeah. So the concern really isn't in the children. I mean, it can occur. It's much more as you get towards a higher uh, teenage, uh, you know, people in their 20s. The, the vast majority of people who have had long COVID have had mild to moderate, that is not hospitalized, and they're between the age 20 and 50. Um, so the children's story is not as concerning. I mean, mm. it's possible. Yeah. But the politics is just ridiculous. You know, this whole idea, let's just deny this and have millions of people suffering. That's despicable, frankly. Um, it, it is unquestionably uh, a big issue, and it's going to be a long st a story going forward. Because even when we get out of this pandemic, which, you know, looks like things are, f are favorable right now, that we'll have a lull, and hopefully we won't see some, you know, really nasty variant going forward, new family of variants. But even after we th this is passed, we've got to deal with this problem. We just can't try to, um, you know, will it away. It's not going to go away. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You bet. We'll have more rising right after this. Surgeon and Johns Hopkins professor Marty McCary criticized Dr. Fauci's lack of research conducted during the pandemic and how it has sparked new issues in America. Let's watch. If you don't know the facts, do the research. He had a budget of $45 billion, 20,000 employees, and they couldn't even tell us how coronavirus spread. They were telling everyone to wash their hands like crazy for the first yes, four and a half exactly. months from January until mid-April. They didn't even know it was airborne. How long would it take to do that experiment in the lab? But it would take less than 24 hours. When you have that kind of budget and resources, don't dangle these open opinions and theories in the public domain. Do the research. That's all we needed. We never saw research on natural immunity. 
how it's spread, how selective it is in children. And children, it's those with special medical conditions that's not healthy children. So when you don't know that, when it's a research unknown and you're not funding research to look at it, you have an indiscriminate blanket policy that ignites a mental yep. health crisis, results in tens of thousands of lost lives, lifelong learning loss, and children who are forever lost to the school system. Podcaster Joe Rogan said that a lesson learned from the pandemic is to, quote, vote Republican. Let's take a listen. No one who is alive today had ever experienced a true pandemic. And I'm hoping that now that this is over, people are going to, you know, recognize that some serious errors were made and not repeat those. That's the best you can get out of it. So what do you tell those people? Vote Republican. (laughs) That's what a lot of them are going to do anyway. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, more than a million people transferred over to the Republican Party, uh, I think, in 2021 alone. Find out what that number is. But, you know, you look at guys like Ron DeSantis, who kept Florida open and, and had some pretty reasonable policies in terms of, like, what what to do about COVID. And, you know, he mapped it out on television. He was, you know, widely criticized for this, where he was saying, like, we need to protect our elders. We need to, you know, make sure that medical care is available for, for those people and everyone else. You should be able to do whatever you want to do. Mm. Uh, of course, Florida has the second highest COVID uh, death rate by statistics. Look, it's frustrating because I certainly have no interest in defending the Democratic Party, but the lockdowns did happen under Donald Trump, and it's a weird kind of a memory holding that's happening here. Yeah, look, I agree with that. I mean, the, the funny thing is, I mean, Dr. Fauci worked for Trump for the right. first for the beginning <laughs> of this pandemic. They've uh, we've kind of memory hold that. Like, Trump wants to pretend that he, oh, I, I set that guy straight. No, you did everything he told you to do. Yeah. And you kind of you maybe undermined him some ways, undercut him, but you basically did. They, we basically did exactly what um, what they wanted for the for the end of, of the Trump uh, year. I'm also not sure it's fair criticism from that the, the guy that was being interviewed on Fox yeah. who was saying that the research wasn't being done. I mean, research was being done. It's that the, the dictates from the public health people were very uh, slow to catch up with research, right, I would knew, say. They knew it was airborne. I mean, part of the disclosure was that they knew, was it January or February, that the yeah. disease was airborne, but there were all kinds of reasons why they didn't want people to go out and, for example, buy up all the masks that the, the people in, in hospitals and who were primary caregivers needed to wear. It was right. a misinformation that I think wasn't driven by ignorance in large part, although there was a period of time where people didn't know. I also think that he overstated the ease of which you can ethically do the kinds of studies he described. Well, ethical is the question because, I mean, I remember being frustrated. Remember when we all learned that actually the, the whatever, the genome of COVID or whatever it is uh, it, it was, was shared and known and they had, like, quite literally manufactured, they could, they could produce the literal vaccine like 24 hours later. But then it took months, and, and this is something we all learned, but then it takes months and months and months for, for testing, for, for trial, I mean, to make sure it's not dangerous, but right. they have it. Meanwhile, thousands of people are dying, and it still took, it took faster right. than it's ever taken before, and maybe that's the fastest it can take, but there's still, there's a frustration that we can't let, the government's not going to let people take it 
And they're dying yeah, I mean, by the thousands. And, and on, the, on the flip side, there have been innumerable vaccines and other kinds of medical technologies that have caused an enormous amount of pain and death. The United States, thalidomide, right. Dalcon shields. Right. What, and was the, what was the one for uh, pregnant women? The, thalidomide, yeah. where all of these kids were born without limbs because, you know, sometimes even if you do test, you get things wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, that is a, a legitimate cost benefit for people to have to do. But I don't think anyone is suggesting that you just throw someone with COVID in a room with someone else with COVID and mm -hmm. see if they catch this disease that no one well but, and you can't well well I, you can't do that because of ethical stand but I so I, uh, I I I'm one of those people who think that human challenge trials would have been perfectly ethical if everyone consents to do it that the government should not stop people from consenting to do things um, if they're willing to do it you could have had a faster I mean, animal, animals, we do testing on animals. Animals cannot consent to be tested on. People can't. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of animal rights activists have a lot of thoughts and feelings about them. They're right. They're right. I, I don't mean to sound like a lefty or something. But, but Are we vegan now, Robbie? I'm not <laughs> vegan. I'm not vegan. Okay. Uh, but, but no, the, the, the animals cannot, this is an important philosophical point. The animals cannot consent to be tested on because they're animals. People, a healthy human being could say, yeah, I'll participate in this for, for payment, for payment. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem and, uh, is And that find out what happens. And if they're willing to do that, it's not unethical if they're willing to do right. that. Right, like, and I'm not saying anything one Scientists are like, oh, no, we can't be, you know, we we'll the, the, not the argument, Dr. Frankenstein, we refuse. The argument is that people have a hard time evaluating risks. So the idea that people are being compensated fairly to assume an amount of risk is out of... So do epidemiologists. Of, well, well, it's out of step with what social psychologists and, 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 and you know, sociologists right. understand. Yeah. The, human's own perception. That's part of why we have things like Social Security, because as much as we know that we're supposed to save a certain amount for retirement, an emergency comes up and people value the short term over the longer term. And I think that a lot of people who sign up for these kinds of things, people who say, okay, it's fine for you to pay me $20,000 for my kidney, feel differently uh, a little bit down yeah, the line. Yeah, but the people setting the rules and saying you're not allowed to take on that risk were the people saying, yeah, I'll never get a haircut again. It's not, it won't ever be well, safe Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily fair to complain. That's what they I, said. I they're, they're, they're more risk averse than any aspect of our, uh, of our society. I don't know. Uh, all right, going back to what you said, Brianna, per 100,000 people, Mississippi, Arizona, Oklahoma, Alabama, West Virginia, and New Mexico actually had the highest death rates. Mm. Overall, California, Texas, Florida, and New York they have the highest death rates overall, so I guess it's per capita versus overall. Yeah. Florida also has a very old population. Um, you know, they have a yeah, fair enough, people I, go I, to retire. I do think that there's this way that we talk about COVID only affecting or disproportionately affecting older people or disproportionately affecting the immunocompromised, like those lives don't matter. And if you were someone who is 70, who was going to live a uh, 10 more years or so, you know, a lot of our parents are in that age range, and I certainly wouldn't think it was immaterial that there was a disease that could have been, um, you know, addressed in a more comprehensive way that would have saved those kinds of lives. No, but that goes, that goes that. the other way, too, because if you're, right, if you're a grandparent and you're, you know, 85 or something, I mean, you're, you know, you have hopefully a very long time, but your time with your kids you know, with your grandkids, is you don't have necessarily so many good years left. And if if you're gonna if you're gonna spend all of those good years, you're not being allowed to see people or being like aggressively not restricted. Being allowed to see, we we, we I mean, mandated that people couldn't see their grandkids. No, uh, well we did at the beginning. Um, there, no, the there UK were, did. It was a suggestion that right. you you social no, no, distance okay. and not don't see people. Me. I'm but not, the police we didn't do that. Separating Tiny Tim from you know Grandma Jane at in the front yard. Yeah. I mean I think it's just important that we remember how we talk about this. In the beginning, a lot of us voluntarily took on behavior because we thought and were told by the medical establishment that that was the right thing to do. 
I think some of that was right, particularly before we got vac vaccines. And a lot of older people were dying at quite what high I'm numbers. Some from other folks might say, now we have the vaccines, they got vaccinated, they have some reasonable protection. They might say, look, if it, I, I don't want to miss out on social opportunities with my family because I don't necessarily have that much time left anyway. And that's not a crazy calculation, taking yeah. some risk at that age for more enjoyment in the remaining time you have rather than always hey, delaying any risk. So you're talking about people being able to make individual choices, which yeah. they always have been able to do with respect to seeing who they want to see in free association. And what I'm talking about is whether or not we are make, uh, drafting COVID policy and implementing COVID policy on the basis of treating some lives is uh, dispensable, which is what happened with a lot of the policies around nursing homes in New York right. that resulted in so many people dying, and which arguably is happening around some of these public policies around masking, where people from the disability community have been very frustrated at that they're basically being told that you have to either completely quarantine in your own home um, or risk very serious health outcomes just because they are somewhat outside of the norm in terms of how how vulnerable they are. Okay, so here's what I meant, for instance. Like my, my grandparents lived in a retirement community in Florida that they're still active, they're, they're involved, there's a community events, there's you know things going on, um, they read plays, they, they do things, and then when COVID hit, that all shut down, and they're mostly just, you know, not, they live comfortably, they, have a, they had a home, it's, it's, it's very nice, but all of, this, all of the community and social things that they enjoy doing you know, were shut down, just like for the rest of us, and then never came back, never came back. Uh, and, and so they, they, they left that community, they moved to be closer to family, because they're older and they value the time, you know, they don't, they don't, they've said they're vaccinated, they said, if the Lord takes us, the Lord takes us, we don't want to spend, you know, what time we have under house arrest um, and not being able to socialize at all. So that's the kind of thing I mean. Mm -hmm. So, well, before we go, yesterday, journalist Peter Ducey questioned White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on COVID and tennis. How come migrants are allowed to come into this country unvaccinated, but world-class tennis players are not? Are you you're talking about which world-class tennis player? Novak Djokovic. So, as far, you know, just to just since you asked about me about him, you asked me about him. So, visa records are confidential under U.S. law. Uh, therefore, the U.S. government cannot uh, discuss the details of individual visa cases uh, due to privacy reasons. The U.S. government also does not comment on medical information of individual travelers as it relates to. Uh, the tennis, uh, the tennis play, uh, player. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this so many times on the show now, because it's just, and you agree, I think that it's it's just so well, hard to defend. I agree this policy. Part. And so I agree that the policy that requires um, the you know athletes to be or anybody really to be vaccinated coming into the country when there are diminishing returns for what that means for the community spread don't make sense. But I do think there's a bit of a false equivalency being drawn here. So for one, back in the spring, the Biden administration started vaccinating migrants at the border. So you can come in, but at some point while, before, while you're being, you know, being detained and processed, you are asked to be vaccinated, otherwise you are continued to be uh, held, et cetera. And people have objected to that, but that is something that the Biden administration started doing. But I also think there's a difference, I'm sorry, between someone who is seeking asylum and someone who is coming for kind of more 
frivolous personal reasons. Like, I obviously think tennis is very important, but we have an asylum policy that's not about an immigration policy. It's the idea that America is supposed to be the home of the free and people who are fleeing political persecution, who are fl fleeing violence, rape, attack for being gay, all these other kinds of things. There are a lot of reasons why you can claim asylum at the nation's border. And that is not something that is criminalized. It's something that we have really stood for as a, a, a country. Now, you have to prove your case there, are, there is a very rigorous process to prove that you have a legitimate asylum claim. I worked on one of these cases pro bono when I was an attorney, and it's very, very hard to do. However, the idea that you should, as, as a con, you know, contingent, your, your claim should be contingent on you first getting a shot, I think is a little, hmm. it undermines the, the values that we set forth as a society. Now, after you win, whether you're required to get vaccinated, I'm not sure what the status of that is right now. But I think, yeah, it would be inconsistent if you can win an asylum claim and then come into the country in a way that random non-American migrants aren't able to do mm. or visitors aren't able to do. Well, I mean, I support reforming our immigration laws, no doubt, but we should bring our, we should reform our immigration laws and we should bring our, whether you can come into the country or not, <laughs> if you've been vaccinated <laughs> policies in yeah, line with, I, I with all that. of our pure nations yeah, at this time, which don't do these, yeah, these, sure. uh, these strict, uh, for sure. kind of things. All right, that does it for us today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the big news of the day and some uh, very special guests. Um, I, I, I joined uh, your podcast, uh, you Actually Bad Faith, to talk about COVID stuff. Y'all should check that out. It was, it was, a, a, fun, it was a real uh, pleasure. It's nice to talk to you in long form, Robbie. <laughs> She's <laughs> saying you're, that through, uh, you have your fingers crossed <laughs> in your back. No, no, he's even more charming outside oh. of the little 10, 15 minute snippets. Why, thank you. <laughs> but be sure to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.